Welcome to the Matea Murdo podcast, where we're delving into all things United Nations, the family, and politics. Let's go. Today we're talking about feminist foreign policy, and you might think, why are we starting off this entire podcast with feminist foreign policy? Because it is so significant as to telling where our specific governments stand when it comes to their agenda overseas. And when I talk about overseas agendas, we have to be cognizant of the fact that, hey, anytime there's agenda overseas, it means that our tax dollars are funding our government's agenda. And so feminist foreign policy has become the lens in which everything is dealt with overseas for Western countries. Now, as somebody who personally worked on Parliament Hill in Canada, Canada was one of the first, if not the first, to implement a feminist foreign policy agenda. And what does that mean? It means any time that the Canadian or other governments now with this in play look at a foreign policy issue, whether it be regarding human rights to climate change, they are going to look at that issue through the lens of feminism. And it's not going to be first or second wave feminism. It's third wave feminism. And they're going to determine their actions according to whatever is the most feminist policy that they can take on the issue and then they will fund it or not fund it so in canada for example there's been so millions millions and millions if not billion dollars if not more than that even poured into this feminist foreign policy agenda now Canada, I remember it so starkly, and it actually made international news when they pledged $650 million for all this this huge package under this foreign policy agenda, which include millions of dollars for contraceptives, so-called safe and legal abortion, which we all know abortion is never safe. It harms a woman, if not kills her sometimes, and it always murders a child in the process. But it also includes prevention and treatment for HIV, AIDS, and other sexually transmitted infections, as well as comprehensive sexuality education, or CSE, which I will spend an entire podcast explaining because advocates for the family, for those who want to protect children's innocence, as well as for parents teachers, politicians alike, everybody should know what comprehensive sexuality education is. And it's in its most basic explanation of what it is. It is the sexual indoctrination of children. And it is incredibly dangerous. Yes, it is dangerous. I don't care what Planned Parenthood says. I don't care what Marie Stopes International says. I don't care what anybody says. When you read what this programming is for our children, it is dangerous. So, when I was learning about what Canada was doing, because at the time and at present, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his administration are in authority, I was kind of puzzled. And I was like, why Why is this now a thing? How does this even become a thing? Well, then I looked at the UN. And of course, the UN was pushing for feminist foreign policy agendas for governments worldwide. Canada ran with it. And then, of course, we saw France, I believe New Zealand, and Mexico amongst a slew, Sweden was another one, they all started putting into play this feminist foreign policy. And I just questioned why why is nobody else questioning how discriminatory this is? But you know, that's that was my side point. I never thought that this would actually this kind of policy would be so pervasive and actually stand the test of time, but it's still in place in Canada years later. 
It's still in place other places in the world. But what was fascinating is when I was doing recent research, because I wanted to see if there was anybody's taking a stand against this ridiculousness from various governments abroad. And I was looking at some individuals specifically from Africa and African nations. And there was actually a Tunisian diplomat who spoke out against these feminist foreign policy. And also a woman named Nimko Ali. She is the CEO of the Five Foundation, which campaigns against female genital mutilation. And she said this, and I quote, Feminist foreign policies should meaningfully include and reflect the knowledge and expertise of African people rather than telling us how to behave. And this segues into what I wanted us to discuss specifically, how Western nations are using this feminist foreign policy against African nations, but they present it as this way of enlightenment and this way of empowering women in Africa. And it's so ridiculous when you actually look at the various cultures throughout African nations, even down to their language and dialects, they don't even have the word abortion in their languages. And it's because it's so separated from their cultural values and even standards. Abortion is not the norm, nor is it praised. Indeed, I was listening to an incredible woman. Her name's Obianuju Ikiocha, and she has this great book called No Strings Attached. And it talks about the ideological colonization currently happening in Africa. And I bring her up and her book specifically because of the title, No Strings Attached. And what happens through these feminist foreign policy countries, specifically Western nations, will come into African nations. And when an African nation is hurting, they will present aid. And with that aid money is attached strings. So they will say, hey, you're going through a drought. Here's money. But in order for you to receive this money, you have to change your legislative stance on abortion or on comprehensive sexuality education or on the use of contraceptives. And the list goes on and on and on until such a time as a country becomes so desperate and their people are so desperate that they indeed just end up accepting that they have to change their legislative agenda in order to fit within the Western nation's feminist foreign policy. And regardless of where you are in the world, regardless if you're working on Parliament Hill or in Congress, regardless of being a stay-at-home mom or an advocate or a tradesperson, it doesn't matter. Whenever you see a policy being announced, you want to see once that policy has been implemented, if it's actually serving the purpose that it's stated to serve. And so I was looking at how these feminist porn policy agendas, how they had actually been serving the people. And it was fascinating because I saw this, this research come out from Michael Schellenberger, who's the founder of the Breakthrough Institute. And he stated that there's two and a half billion people in the world who rely on wood and dung for energies, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. And he went on to say that there's the cheap energy is women's liberation. I was like, wow, isn't that a statement? It's so short. Cheap energy is women's liberation. And he gave us a great speech at Austin University. And he referred to all these efforts to deprive people of natural gas and liquefied petroleum gas. And he labeled that as moral abomination. And I sat back and it's so simple, but it is indeed true. These very accessible, very cheap means of energy are indeed being stripped away from societies who don't have access to all of the green energy that 
individuals in the West want everybody to be on board with. And these green means and ways of energy cost so much money and often are so unaccessible to people in areas throughout the world. So I found it fascinating because under feminist foreign policy, regardless of where it's implemented in the world or being pushed by whatever government, they actually are pushing not just for contraception rights or so-called abortion rights, but they're also pushing for climate change protections or green energy. And under green energy, of course, like I just said, it's not cheap energy. So if they're really seeking to liberate or empower women these Western nations through feminist foreign policy, yet they're pushing for these climate change agendas. They're actually having the opposite effect on these women. And at the same time as trying to push for these agendas, they're also giving essentially the middle finger to these nations and their cultures. There's no respect for cultural norms or values. Instead, they're trying to make sure that cultures change, shift in the direction towards a more Western society and standards. This is the direction that United States wants to go. Indeed, feminist groups in the U.S. have even called on the Biden administration to adopt a feminist foreign policy and to include advocacy for something we call at the U.N. SRHR, Sexual and Reproductive Health and Rights. And they say that this is some sort of key domestic and foreign policy priority for the administration. And even further to that, Louis Frankel, who's a Democrat from Florida, introduced this resolution into the House of Representatives, and he was pushing for the U.S. to take a feminist approach to all aspects of foreign policy. So this is already knocking on the door. And here's the thing. I love America. I moved from Canada to America, and I don't want to see her go down the same socialistic and now communistic path that Canada has gone down. And I know Canada on the world stage used to have this beautiful, wonderful reputation of being absolutely stellar, but here we are pushing this foreign policy agenda through this feminist lens, and now nations across the world are like, uh-uh, we don't like you no more. You completely disrespect our culture and don't even agree with us on the basic values of life and the family. And I don't want that to happen for America, for America to go into these nations and then push the same agenda and for her reputation to be further tarnished. No, I want America to stand, America to continue to have a good reputation on the world stage. Yes, I'm there. There are countries that really dislike America. I'm totally aware of that. But further tarnishing, instead of trying to restore America's reputation on the world stage, feminist foreign policy serve as a major disadvantage to United States and other countries that currently have them in place. Now, in the opening paragraphs, of that resolution that Representative Frankel from Florida, who's a Democrat, promoted and put out there, he made it clear that the definition of the word sex includes gender identity or expression. That's dangerous. He also urged the U.S. to prioritize people facing, quote, intersecting forms of discrimination, including a lack of access to sexual and reproductive health rights and justice. And reproductive justice, just so you understand, includes abortion okay so this is where your tax dollars are going towards so-called reproductive justice or sexual and reproductive health and rights it all includes abortion sterilization contraception all of these incredibly pervasive thing ways of indoctrinating children sexually this is what it all includes and this would include increasing global gross domestic product by 28 trillion and so in reality this 
figure refers to a whole scenario where women participated in the economy identically to men. And this is what the UN and all these governments who are becoming global governments, really, if you look at them, they all have the same agenda. This is how they are labeling the empowerment of women, where men and women are equally out of the home, equally working, bringing in a paycheck. But then that lends to the question of where do these couples' children end up? They end up in government or so-called public schools. I label them as government schools for a very specific reason. They end up in government schools being indoctrinated by the government to vote the way the government wants them to vote once they're of voting age. And this is part of the global agenda. This is the ideal world that governments of the West who are working in in tandem with the United Nations desires for all these nations to come to an understanding of having the same cultural values and standards so that at one point in time, these governments will all work together to form one world government. And people will immediately turn off my podcast because of this. I don't care. I'm in these rooms with these people. I have sat in meetings with UNFPA, the United Nations Population Control Fund. I've sat in rooms with UNICEF and UNESCO. I've sat in these rooms and I understand how these people think. I read their documents on a daily basis. And when it comes to Africa specifically, there's this huge attention and focus just on this one continent and specific nations in particular that are very, very pro-life and very pro-family. And when you look at who is actually holding back this globalist cabal, it is indeed African nations. Uganda is a perfect example. Despite the immense smear campaigns by Western media, governments, philanthropy groups, Uganda has continually stood strong in defense of this legislation they just brought in. And it's controversial, yes, in terms of Western cultural now norms. But it falls in line with Uganda's cultural values. All these, all these globalists like to talk about tolerance and yet go on the attack when a nation takes a stand for values that contradict their own vision. Now, when it comes to Uganda, this protectionary law that they put in that everybody decries as anti-LGBTQ, once the World Bank heard about it, first they put everything on pause. Their, this anti-homosexuality act contradicts the World Bank's position on the issue. But the president of Uganda did not back down even when the World Bank first paused and then suspended indefinitely working with Uganda. This is what it takes. And I believe that Uganda will continually be a light to these nations, regardless of what people are going to push, regardless of what people say. Continually standing is the only thing that will protect cultures and that will protect lives ultimately. I'm going to be delving into many other issues regarding policy, whether foreign or domestic, in the future on future podcasts. But I wanted you to hear about feminist foreign policy first and foremost, because as you watch the news, as you read headlines, as you hear discussions even in universities and in your public or government schools, you're going to start to see, ah, the government or my Western media is smearing a nation. Why are they actually smearing that nation? What is their personal interest in smearing that nation? What is it that they're not telling me about this piece of legislation some foreign government is implementing? And why is my Western nation so concerned? Western nations and the UN, WEF, IMF, World Bank, all of them bully nations into submitting to their globalist ideals. 
seek to change societies so that they will adopt the same standards, as I said before, so that in future there can be a cohesive one world government. This is the agenda and feminist foreign policy is just one part of reaching that goal. Now, that's a lot of information. What do we do with it? First and foremost, regardless of the nation you're in, look up your federal and state government's legislation on feminist foreign policy. You can literally go to your search engine. I pray it's not Google, but even if it is, it'll pop up, DuckDuckGo, whatever it may be. Plug in Canada feminist foreign policy, United States feminist foreign policy, Brazil feminist foreign policy, France, whatever it may be. Look up and then talk to your politician. Send a basic email. Make a two-minute, one-minute phone call to your local politicians, your federal politicians, state, provincial, and just say that you stand opposed and then provide a solution. Offer your name, your address, contact information, and say, I am opposed to Canada's feminist foreign policy agenda. I do not support abortion, comprehensive sexuality education, or gender ideology. I do stand for the family and believe that this is the most unifying, beneficial approach to foreign policy. That's all you have to say and insert your own country. This is how you take a stand. And on top of that, at the end of every single podcast episode that I do, I'm always going to tell you to contact your country's United Nations mission. So if you type in United States mission to the United Nations, it'll pop up with contact information and your nation will have the exact same. There's 194 nations at the UN. So you can actually lobby the United Nations the same way you lobby your federal, local, and state politicians. Send them an email and a phone call and keep up to date with what people are doing at the UN from your nation. Encourage them, encourage them. They often feel forgotten. They're bureaucrats, yes. They have to follow the government's agenda, yes. But if you continually contact them, that is how we is an, that is how we can have a major impact as to what happens at the UN. Contact your government's mission to the UN on a regular basis. Keep up to date with what they're doing. They're all on social media, and you can even tune in to what they're saying and what they're proposing at the UN by watching UN TV. And as always, you can keep up to date with what's happening at the UN by continually following this podcast, clicking subscribe, and following all of my social media, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Matea Murda. Make sure you leave a comment or a question down below, whether it's about the UN, family, politics in general. I'm always happy to respond. Until next time, take care.